You're listening to a Curry Mail podcast. Deadly. The Black Room. The Black Room, your fortnightly podcast where our journalists and editors unpack the stories and issues from the latest edition of the Curry Mail newspaper. Hello and jingiwala, welcome to the Black Room. I'm your host, Nick Payton. I'm a proud Ngunnawal man and journalist here at the Kurimao newspaper. In this podcast, we will be taking a look at edition 757, which has just hit newsstands on August 11. First up, I'll be having a yarn with our reporter and Palawa woman, Gillian Mundy, about the winners of the Telstra National Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Art Awards held last weekend. Then we'll be hearing from our editor, Rudy Maxwell, and our senior journalist, Darren Coyne, for a conversation about deceptive conduct within the funeral planning industry and about raising the age of criminal responsibility. And for everything happening with our communities in sport, we'll be finishing up with a yarn from our sports editor, Darren Moncrief, who'll be giving a roundup of the Tokyo Olympics. But first... We acknowledge Bundjalung country and the Wijibal Waibal land upon which our officers sit. We acknowledge and pay our respects to our ancestors and elders, past and present. Always was, always will be Aboriginal land. The Koori Mail. Knowledge. Culture. Country. Connection. Now, our first guest is Gillian Mundy, who has been reporting for the Koori Mail for more than 15 years. And last weekend, Gillian was at the Telstra National Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Art Awards. Gillian, welcome to the Black Room. Hi, Nick. Thanks for having me. Now, Gillian, we have got you on the phone because you are all the way down in Tasmania. Um, can you first tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and your mob? Um, I'm a Pakana woman. I grew up in Hobart and I've been writing and photographing for Koori Mail as like a Tassie correspondent for over one and a half decades, but I also get sent other places sometimes. And I apologise if it's a bit noisy in the background. I'm, you've phoned me. I'm up in the remote northwest coast of Tasmania in a of or Lutrawitta, you would say, um, on the Tarkine Coast, which is about the, the most, and where I am at the moment on King's Run, which is returned Aboriginal land through purchase, is about the most westerly point of Tasmania, and it is blowing an absolute gale. It's raining. I can see the ocean with great big waves going over the jagged rocks. Like, it's really wild weather. Sounds like a, a fairly windy, stormy day down there. Oh, yeah. Well, actually, we went for a little drive earlier on the way back. We interrupted an eagle, a great wedge tail, which you don't see a lot of in Tasmania anymore, that endangered, was pulling the guts out of a Tasmanian devil. Oh, you're kidding. Yeah, I tried to get my camera, but I just wasn't quick enough. We accidentally scared it, of course. Didn't get it in time. Off it went. Uh, now, Gillian, let's talk about the National Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Art Awards, which were held last Friday. This is a event that you have covered in our current edition of the Koori Mao newspaper. Tell me a little bit about the awards. Previously, it's my understanding they were 
more remote um, award, but now it covers all of Australia. And they choose 50 finalists out of hundreds of entries. And then they have an overall winner. And I think it's six category winners. And it's considered the most prestigious Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander art award. And I think it means a lot to the people that enter because it's a, it shows that gets their story out there, shows that people respect their stories. Um, $50,000 cash prize, which, you know, to some people money might not mean much to them because they're not that interested in money. But, yeah, I mean, $50,000 never goes astray, obviously. Oh, $1,000 is huge for me, Gillian. What yeah, are you talking exactly. about? Fifty grand. I say that because I've met some people because I've been covering the awards for about yeah, six or seven years and I have interviewed a couple of people that lead fairly traditional lives and money's just not part of their life. Yep, yep. And so, Gillian, we've got a big, massive photo here on the front page of our latest edition, 757, of Pitanjara man, Timo Hogan, standing in front of his beautiful artwork, which has earned him the major prize at the Telstra National Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Art Awards. How did that make Timo feel? Happy. Happy, and to him, it's very important to him that people see his work because um, it's a really important creation story to him and to his people, I should say. And it's his birthright to be able to tell that story. Not all of it. There's some parts of the story he can't tell the wider public. It's a story of how two men watch as Lake Baker's resident water serpent departs his home in the rock hole and becomes the fearful, the all-powerful as he skirts the edge of the lake, always watching, aware of the two men. How amazing. Yeah, and it's about how the country was created, the landmarks and the environment. So, Gillian, you've got five pages in here. So much is happening in the art world. What else did you find was happening at the Art Awards? Who else was there? I mean, I've looked at who the award winners are and you'll be able to read about them and a lot of them from really remote places places it would be hard to go and find out the stories coming from there most of the stories are about country Mm. a lot of them about creation stories we've got um one about the the general painting award is from a lady from the gibson desert in western australia from kanawarincha bugawai ulta and her family was one of the last families to come out from the desert. And that, that painting, I mean, my, a lot of these paintings are more story than painting. Paint, that's just the, I guess, the way they've been conveyed through a painting. And that's about where she grew up along where, you know, they cut through the Canning Stock Route, the longest. I think the Canning Stock Route is probably the longest stock route in the world and it cuts across the northwest of Western Australia. Right. Paintings about where they first see white fellas. And Bugai doesn't speak any English. She speaks heaps of other lang- desert languages, though. And through, I would guess it's one of her relations, Cyril, she'd said, this is the quote, they were running away from those white fellas watching them from a long distance. And it just, 
you know, it just makes me think there's people still in their living memory that seen white fellas for the first time. Absolutely. And we've actually printed those artworks. So make sure you get a hold of our current edition because these artworks that Gillian is speaking about, we've got those catalogued within the five page lift out. Now that particular award with uh, Bugai, uh, Gillian was talking about was the Telstra general painting award. Um, tell me a little bit about the Telstra bark painting award, Gillian, that's by a Yongu woman. Yeah, a younger one called Dambert, and it's unlike most um, painting, but paintings, which is a traditional form of artwork, and would usually be painted in ochre. She's used blue paints, which is a favourite colours, the colours of the sky and the sea, and I really dig that because blue is my favourite colour too. But she'd been in a been hit by a car a few years ago, leaving a unable to grind ochre, so her elders told her she could use acrylic paint. She's chosen to paint in blues. And if you look her up online, you'll see oh, her amazing paintings, nearly all mainly with a blue palette. And apparently she's very generous of the paintings. And up round where she's from in Yucala in the Northern Territory, that's Arnhem Land, um, Apparently heaps of households will have one of her paintings on the wall. I bet. I bet. Yeah. uh, That's bees that we've got there. Um, And you can see what you were just talking about uh, with those beautiful colours coming through in Dambit's artwork. Um, And it says that this particular artwork was inspired by a story that was told to her when she was about 14. How amazing is that? Oh, and I think it would be really amazing to see in person. Obviously, this year I wasn't able to be there because of COVID restrictions and the Telstra Award Gallery's gone online. But for people that are in Darwin, is there the gallery you can go in person and look at the exhibition till the end of January. And, yeah. So, look, we can see that you've got a jam-packed five-page lift-out for our readers. Gillian Mundy, thank you so much for coming into the Black Room today. It's been a pleasure having you here, and we are looking forward to seeing what you've got for us in our upcoming edition. Yeah, no worries. Woolica. Coming up after the break, I'll be speaking to the Koori Mail's editor, Rudy Maxwell, and senior journalist, Darren Coyne. The Kurumal newspaper is the voice of Indigenous Australia. The Black Room would like to advise the following audio contains the voices of people who have died. It's an injustice to have Australia's original inhabitants 13 times more likely to end up in prison. have never been arrested. Someone dies and there is no consequences. We know what needs to be done. Stop looking away. This is about a reckoning with the truth of our past. Incarceration Nation, Sunday, 29th of August on NITV and On Demand. Welcome back to The Black Room. That's right, Australia's history of intergenerational abuse and incarceration from youth detention to adult imprisonment is Incarceration Nation, which will be on NITV on August 29. We've done a full write-up on Incarceration Nation in this edition, which features on page 10. 
Now, I have sitting with me the editor of the Kurimau newspaper, Rudy Maxwell. Rudy, welcome back to The Black Room. Thank you very much for having me, Nick. Now, Rudy, we've also got our senior reporter, Darren Coyne, who is dialing in from his home where he's uh, working from home under lockdown restrictions here on Bundjalung Country. Darren, welcome to The Black Room. G'day, Nick. G'day, Rudy. Okay, so I've got the current edition 757 sitting in front of me, and the main headline today is Deceptive Conduct. Rudy, I'm going to turn to you first. This headline's made me quite angry. It looks as though Aboriginal people are once again getting ripped off. What's happened? So Darren's done a, a huge amount of legwork for this story, and he has actually been following it for three years. But in a nutshell, a funeral plan company which is known by two names, uh, the Aboriginal Community Benefits Fund and UPLA, has essentially been misleading Aboriginal people into paying exorbitant amounts for funeral plans. Um, and I should say too that this company has been in existence for quite a while and they did used to advertise with the Koori Mail. They no longer do do as soon as we're aware that they were engaging in unscrupulous conduct, we no longer accepted their advertising. I will just throw to Darren here, who has, as I said, been covering this story for the past three years. Yeah, okay. Um, listen, we, we got notified the other day uh, from the Australian Financial Complaints Authority that, um, that this company, um, it had been found that they'd been engaged in this in, in misleading practice, and uh, they were ordered to pay back. It was almost fourteen thousand dollars to one of their one of their customers. Now, Darren, can I just jump in for our listeners that don't know how Aboriginal people have been misled? In particular, what are we talking about being misled? How have they been misled? Okay, this company this company was um, uh, putting it out there that they were. Well, most people thought that they were an Aboriginal company, an Aboriginal-owned and operated company, which they weren't. And um, there was a lot of high-pressure selling in communities. Uh, and as you know, um, funerals are very important um, to Aboriginal people. Uh, sorry business is taken very, very seriously. And people want to plan for the future. They don't want to be uh, caught out when somebody passes. So this company was pretty much trading on that and taking advantage of people and signing up people to... Uh, plans which the person would end up paying far more over the period than they would ever actually get back. And uh, they were also signing up uh, babies, funeral plans for babies. Now, hmm. anyway, um, AFCA found that uh, they've dealt with, I think it was 17, 17 complaints last year, 15 of them were to do with this company. And I had a little look at all, all of them and... Uh, and it, so far, the, the company's been ordered to pay back almost $140,000. That's just in, for these 15 complaints. And apparently there's another 170 complaints to uh, still be sorted through. That is absolutely insane, Darren. And so this company, this the, the funeral um, company, have they yeah. are they still operating? Are they still allowed to operate under this, you know, premise that... Uh, well... They applied for a financial license last year and uh, that was rejected. So, no, they aren't able. But uh, ASIC, the Australian Securities Investment Commission, uh, has has commenced proceedings in the federal court against this company and that's, that's ongoing. Um, 
So I, I think there's another hearing uh, later in the year. But, um, but we'll be following that closely. So we've got AFCA's Chief Ombudsman David Locke said complaints about the sales of funeral insurance in Indigenous communities continued to be troubling in 2021. So it seems as though... Um, Mr. Locke is saying that there's a bit of a pattern of poor conduct in regional and remote communities. Would that is that what Mr. Locke's saying? That's exactly what he's saying, and he's saying that this one provider accounted accounted for 98 percent of funeral insurance related complaints. So, and as, as we just discussed, it's been the subject of multiple determinations in favour of the complainants. So, and as you um, said, it seems. It seems like things are catching up for, for this mob. And how dis- disrespectful for Aboriginal people who, as you said, sorry business is such an important part um, of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander culture in that for many Indigenous communities, these can go on for weeks. It can go on for months. Like this is a very right. drawn out process for a lot of communities and for for these poor vulnerable people to be believing that they're getting a service from an Aboriginal-owned, an Aboriginal-controlled organisation who's going to take care of these these very, um, you know, important parts of the sorry business process, um, you know, I, I'm just shocked that, um, that, you know, this this company was allowed to do this for so long. Yeah, that's right, Nick. If I can just jump in there. One of the other things I remember that they were doing from one of Darren's earlier stories is that they were signing up people to multiple plans, which meant that the premiums they'd paid over the lifespan of the policy were way more than the amount of money that they were getting paid out to cover funeral expenses. And the thing is, as anyone knows who's lost someone, that is a very distressing time. So you may well not be, um, I guess, reading things in fine detail. And also you might not have the the emotional energy to get into an argument with an insurance company. And it's that time, as you say, where you're vulnerable and you expect that when you've paid these quite expensive premiums in a lot of cases that you would be treated with compassion and respect. And as far as we can see, that certainly hasn't been the case here. It'd be interesting to see, Darren, I don't know what kind of documentation you've maybe come across in the years reporting on this issue, but it would be interesting to see why the premiums are so high as compared to other funeral agencies and other premiums. What is the reason? Why are they so high? Uh, You know, it just seems as though it's another case of Aboriginal people being blatantly ripped off. Yeah, and I think think you're on the money there, Nick. Um, They're obviously being taken advantage of. A lot of the people, and reading through the determinations, a lot of the people who have signed up to these plans, um, they they may not have had a a great education. They, they, they're a little bit flustered when it comes to that sort of paperwork and they, and they believe what somebody tells them. And when somebody's there at the door and they've got flashy brochures which have got Aboriginal themes all over it, they, they take it at face value. Um, look, when, when, this, when this story first broke a few years ago, I think that the word quickly spread and that's why so many people now are, are starting to um, question these plans. Mm. And look, the advice is from, from the financial experts, the advice is that there's, there's better ways to plan for a funeral. 
Darren, I think the most shocking part for me is what you mentioned before in that this particular company was selling these plans on the behalf of a child. Um, That's right. Which so, is, so you might have mum who signs up, then signs up dad, then signs up, you know, two or three kids, and and pretty soon they're, pay, they're paying some uh, pretty high premiums going out. And look, those, those kids could be... <laughs> They could be alive for the next 60, 70, 80 years. Yep, you are right, Darren. That is a shocking story. Now, turning to another important issue that we have reported on in this edition, which is raising the age of criminal responsibility. Rudy, I know you are big on this subject. It really does seem as though it's far too young. Yeah, that's right. So we've all written stories on this, you, Darren, myself, at different times, um, talking about how in different jurisdictions, states and territories, the criminal age of responsibility can be as low as 10 in some cases. So that means that children as young as 10 are being locked up in juvenile detention in some states and territories. Now, the other things we know are that the single biggest predictor of whether or not a child is going to come into contact with the criminal justice system is whether or not they're in out-of-home care. And then following on from that, the single biggest predictor of whether an adult is going to come in contact with the criminal justice system is whether they've come in contact with it as a child. So It is a reasonable inference to make that by locking up children as as young as 10, they are being condemned to a lifetime behind bars. But kids this young, you know, we've got the juvenile justice system. Is that the right place for these kids this young to be going? Aren't there other programs and therapies and things that are happening that are being provided by Aboriginal people that could help? Absolutely. And that is absolutely the point. These kids, young as 10, should not be being locked up in juvenile detention. They should be being diverted into diversionary programs, of which there are a number around that are successful, run by Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander organisations. And Darren, you've done a write-up on page 8 uh, about this issue for this edition. That's, that, that's right, Nick. Um, look, it's, Australia really stands out here. It's got a, got a particularly poor record in this regard, and it's, it's not just Australia which is noticing this, or groups in Australia. It's, this is, we're, we're getting pressure from uh, across the world. Um, just recently, uh, the United Nations, they do a five-year human rights review of countries and in their in their review of Australia, uh, thirty member nations uh, put forward a recommendation that um, that the age be raised to fourteen. Now, Australia is representative to the UN, um, pretty much stared that one down and said, "Look, this isn't a federal responsibility. It's up to the states and the territories." And so, pretty much. It's, it's buck passing to states and territories, and each each one is uh, is, is lagging. Uh, except for the ACT, the ACT is the only territory which is actually uh, looking to adopt fourteen as the age of criminal responsibility. Um, 
The statistics are in a, a crazy, in, but from 2019 to 20, we've got 499 children aged between 10 and 13 years old were imprisoned and 65% of those were Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander people. That's right, Nick. And look, you've got to look at places like, um, say, the Northern Territory. We've all, we've all heard the stories out of the Dondale uh, Youth Centre up there. Uh, there was a big payout recently to some of the young people who were in there because of the treatment that they copped. Um, look, I'm not saying that, you know, all the states and territories are completely lagging on this issue. New South Wales, there, there has been a recommendation from a parliamentary committee to raise the age, but, uh, but the government hasn't acted on it. Because in um, New South Wales, it's currently 10 years old, isn't it? That's right. Yep. Yep. That's right. Um, Victoria, the Greens have had a bill. Uh, it's gone to a second reading down in Victoria to raise the age to 14, but um, but the government there has is just dilly-dallying also. It's a tough situation, but these governments, they, they, they need to pull their heads out of the sand, out of the sand. They, they, they need to stop this whole sort of tough-on-crime approach and because it's not working. It's just, it, it, as, as Rudy said, it's pretty much sentencing these young people to a lifetime of incarceration. Yep. Absolutely. And you've got a comment here from uh, the Change the Record co-chair, Cheryl Axelby, um, who says 10-year-old children who get trapped in the criminal justice system don't come out. You know, and no, that's, that's right. That's really echoing that sentiment as well of what Rudy spoke about before in that ongoing cycle. That's right, Nick. And Cheryl and other um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander advocates for youth justice all say the same thing. There is much medical evidence that shows that kids as young as 10 are not capable of understanding what the age of criminal responsibility means. And so, you know, some kids do dumb things Mm. like, you know, so locking them up is certainly not the solution. And it's no coincidence, I believe, that the ACT, as well as talking about as actually raising the criminal age, is also the only jurisdiction in Australia that's seriously introducing what we call justice reinvestment, which is that funds that would have been spent locking children up instead go to diversionary programs. And many of those, there's a trial in, in New South Wales as well, many of those are run by Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander organisations and it's shown to be an effective way of keeping kids engaged and out of juvenile detention. I think, Rudy, as you said, this is now a critical opportunity for the Australian government to do things right. Let's invest money in justice reinvestment. You know, let's do the right thing by Aboriginal people. Let's stop keeping them incarcerated. Let's, you know, allow um, diversion therapy options. There are so many other things that 10-year-old kids could be doing to get help than being incarcerated. Absolutely. All right. Well, look, Darren and Rudy, thanks so much for joining me again in the Black Room today. We will see you both in a fortnight. Thanks very much for having us, Nick. Boogle Bear. Uh, Boogle Bear. Thank you, guys. That was uh, good to have a chat. Since 1991, the Koori Mail has been the voice of Indigenous Australia. As Australia's only national fortnightly publication, we are excited to celebrate our 30th birthday this year. For all the latest news and views, subscribe at koorimail.com.
And welcome back to the Black Room. I have Yamachi Man and our deadly sports editor, Darren Moncrief, sitting with me. Darren, welcome back to the Black Room. Good to be here. Now, Darren, we've had a massive two weeks in sport, but before we get to that, tell our listeners a little bit about who you are and your mob. Yeah. So I'm from a place called Kunwari or Carnarvon. Yep. And, um... That's WA. Yeah. West Australia on the West Coast. Yep. And, um, my, um, poppy's mob is Wajiri and my nana's is Dadagri and Yingada. And that's, but geographically we're called Yamajis. So geographic not, terms. So for our listeners that, okay, they've placed themselves in Western Australia. Yep. So where can they kind of place themselves with the, with those mobs? Um, Mikathara. Yeah. In desert. So 500 kilometers. Inland. North east of Perth. Okay. And Carnarvon, Gunwari, 1,000 k's north of Perth. Oh, okay. So wow. sort of in between those two. Yep. Yep. Beautiful. Mm. Well, let's jump to it. So what's been happening this fortnight? Well, the big, the greatest show on earth just finished, the Olympics. Yep. And um, in the games, I've loved it. I've loved every, each time I could watch it. I tell you what, that went quick. It did. That went so quick because they had the closing ceremony oh. just the other day. Yep. Because uh, we have just uh, published on Wednesday, August 11. Mm. And that was just a couple of days before that. And I thought, hold on. Yeah. Is it already over? That's right. And of interest to us is the 16 record-making Indigenous athletes in the Australian team. And of those 16, three won medals. Unfortunately, black gold eluded us this 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 game. Yep. But um, we had um, Talika Clancy and Maria Faye, part playing partner with the beach volleyball, won silver. Ash Barty won bronze in bizarre circumstances. And Paddy Mills, the great Paddy Mills, won bronze with the Boomers. We detail that. In um, in this edition, you have a massive four-page spread on the wrap-up, and I love how you've kind of sectioned out all of the different sports into their own little categories and a little wrap-up on each. That's right. We have um, Liana Barati. She's f used to work at the AOC, and she's quite um, she knows her Olympics very well in athletes, and she's broken down each of their performances um, throughout the games. Each of the 16 athletes. Just it's, beautiful it's pictures as well. I love how you've picks. put all the pictures. The, the colours are just beautiful. Yeah, they're all there. And, um, yeah, it's it's quite inspiring, actually. Some of these athletes are making their debuts, some of multiple games. Yeah, each with the stories you tell. And hopefully we do them justice in this edition. Absolutely. So in other news in sport, I can see that there's some very distressing news here about another cancellation yet again of the Koori knockout. Yeah, a postponement actually, but it's like a cancellation, isn't it, for this year? Um, it's the Koori knockout. They've been forced to postpone it again like they did last year. Where was it meant to be last year? Nowra in the south coast, New South Wales south coast. It's the Aboriginal Rugby League Koori knockout yep. carnival. yep. Happens each year. Biggest Aboriginal rugby league event in the country. Because you and I went to which year was that? Twenty nineteen, and that was now. the last one. Where was that on the Central Coast? Yeah. wasn't it? Yeah. And so the team called South Coast Black Cockatoos. They won it. Yep. So when you win it, you have the rights to host it. First time a team south of Sydney won it, right in the history. And so they're looking forward to it, and they've worked so hard only to be, um, yeah. Because what about all the logistical things? So Logistics, getting the event together, they've booked all the thing. You know, everything's been booked and postponed. The, the local shire down there has been very, very good. 
with the organization and um but and we speak to um the organizers um the inspirational player coach ben wellington we speak to him he just conveys his heartbreak out at all through in our story and um chris flanders did a great job with that so yeah it's just terrible Not news cool. darren i know so what is the plan then? So if it's been postponed till... twenty Same time, 2022. Okay. They've only got a small window they can hold it, and that's October long weekend. And so the, and there was an option to um, um, organise a scale-down knockout with minimal amount of teams, but being the 50th organised host said, no, we, we can't honour that. We can't honour the knockout properly if we do that. So this is the big 50th anniversary. Yeah. Yeah. So they had twice in a row now, they had to hold it off. So anyway, we talked to the organisers and yeah, it's quite a hard read. We just don't know how it's going to go. I mean, we know up here in Bundjalung country, we've just been put into a week long mm. snap lockdown. And I mean, you know, you can't even plan for this type of just stuff. Just the flow on effect of it all. Hey, yeah, yeah it's quite hard. Now, tell me, what have you got coming up in your column this edition? Um, I sort of, in this edition, I like to, um, I enjoyed the Olympics, but what made it really enjoyable, as a fan of sport, I love sport, all sorts of sport, but what made these Olympics really enjoyable was the commentary around it. How good it. was it? It was like minimal, it was like maximum two people in the box calling the action, and you had like a play-by-play -play sort of comments, and then you had a special comments to analyse, and I found analysis with swimming, uh, Ian Thorpe, um, Anna Mears in cycling, um, Tasman Manau, Nee Lewis in athletics. She, they were very good. And they took you right in the action. They took you to the start line of the athletics. They took you into the pool. They took you on the track. It was so good. Gave was you just, reasons why people were doing things a certain way. Or yeah, even your obscure sports, you know, your, your martial arts, your um, um, BMX even, you know, and mountain biking. That was really good. So... And I sort of make a point that the footy commentary in this country can take a leaf out of this because they, let's put it bluntly, they kind of detract from the action on the field. We have the two dynamic football codes and their mindless banter and, and boys club mentality just takes away from the action and they could learn, you know, have one caller playing the, calling the action and a special comments and that's all you need. Now, Darren, we've also got your regular uh, columnists, Shelley Ware and Dean Witters. Yes. Give us a quick wrap up what's happening in their columns this edition. Well, Shelley makes a really good point here about the AFLW is kicking off again. Of the 14 teams in the AFLW, AFL women's comp, 14 teams, not one female coach of what's those teams. What's going on there? Exactly. That's the point she brings up. At the start of the... A4W seven years ago there was two and that's been wheeled down. It was one and then there's none. So she she looks for answers in in her column. She explores you know how and why and what could be done. Yeah, it's quite interesting. Wow, it sounds like it's almost the boys' club in the AFLW. Yeah, I mean there's the critical mass I guess of people in football are male because of the history of how it's evolved, but. You know, nowadays in time, that's going to change and it, we should be seeing it now, but we aren't. And the other column was Dean, who is actually, Dean Withers, former NRL player, is actually coach of the NRLW Parramatta Eels team, okay? So anyway, in Dean's column, he talks about a missed opportunity for an Aboriginal team and a Maori team to play at the World Cup, the Rugby League World Cup in England. Right. 
built because Australia and New Zealand as countries pulled out of that. Because you mentioned this last episode, that yeah. there was a possibility that those two teams were going to replace Australia. There was chatter and there were, and there was good, there was positive talk from the, the Aboriginal boys within the NRL that they, yeah, we can represent a mob at this World Cup. Anyway, so Dino um, talks us through that and it's, it's, they've since postponed the World Cup and so we missed the boat there, but it could be opportunity in the future. So many lockdowns affecting so much in sport. I mean, um, any other, any other things happening where the, where the lockdown has, you know, yeah, caused, caused some damage? Well, around this time of the year, a lot of the young up and coming footballers are showing their wares at national tournaments, but because they've been canceled or postponed or put off, they're going to miss that chance to impress, you know, AFL scouts, rugby league scouts to, you know, progress further up the food chain. So, um, which can be critical if you're at the prime of your career and this is your year to shine and you don't it. get that opportunity to play in front of those people. I know it's a year later and you know, you may be off the pace or you get injured and there's your opportunity. So yeah, it's having a lots of cascading effects on how sport is being played. Darren, it seems as though we've got a little bit longer to get through in terms of the lockdown situation with Australia. We're all hoping, uh, you know, these restrictions ease as soon as they can for all of our mob and all of our communities involved in sport. Darren Moncrief, thanks again for joining me in the Black Room. You're welcome. Koorimau Employment Section is filled with jobs for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people every edition. And with more than 100,000 sets of eyes reading our newspaper every fortnight, the Koorimau is a great place to advertise. Visit koorimau.com. Boogle Bear, thank you for listening to The Black Room. I'm Nick Payton. We'll be back in a fortnight for edition 758. Make sure you hit subscribe on your screen to stay up to date with the latest Black Room podcast. You can find links to our socials and other Kurimao podcasts in the show description.